Thanks, Elliot. Morning, everyone. So good to see you again. As Elliot said, week number two. also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Our first move together that we began last week, as we begin to regather as a church, is a move of surrender. We are surrendering our lives and our futures to the God who owns them both. I think it's really appropriate that in the middle of this year that is so unprecedented that we are surrendering ourselves to the God who never changes. Jesus describes surrender this way, Luke 9, 23. He said, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, in other words, anyone wants to follow me, here's what's involved. You must deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow me. Now, for Jesus, death was not just the final or, or actually the singular act of surrender to the will of his Father. It was the final act in a life of surrender. But in the week leading up to his death, when he took up his cross, there are four examples that I, I want us to look at that really give us great images of what it means practically to surrender. So to help us to understand these examples and remember them, we are using a physical posture for each act of surrender in these four Sundays. And these are the four. Last week we talked about the physical posture of bowing your head and what that represents in terms of surrender. Today we're going to talk about closing your eyes and why we do that when we pray. Third, next week will be open your hands, and then the last week, week four, will be get on your knees. So these postures represent what it is specifically that we are surrendering to God and His plan and His control. And each one of these has a word that we're using to describe what it is we're surrendering. Each word begins with the same letter, the letter W. So last week, for this, the posture of bowing your head, the W word is will. We bow our heads as a symbol of deference to the will of another. And in this case, we are bowing our heads to remind ourselves and to be a physical indicator that we are surrendering our will to the will of God. It's not our desires that reign, it's God's desires, and we're willing to do what He wants us to do. Today, we turn our attention to the second surrender posture, which is close your eyes. Now, the W word that represents this surrender act is the word wait. Wait. When you close your eyes, you got to stop moving because you can't see what's in front of you. You have to wait. Now, of course, we've done a lot of waiting in the past six months because back in March, the future turned not completely black, but a lot darker than it had been. It became almost impossible for us to plan because we just couldn't see very far. So we had to stop all kinds of things that we were doing, and we just had to wait. Whenever we have to wait, for any reason, it's an invitation for us to surrender our idea of the future to what God is doing in the future. Now, the future is never dark to God. One of the great examples of this occurred the week before Jesus took up his cross and died on that cross. His disciples had asked Jesus, where they were going to celebrate the Passover. The Passover event was just a few days away, and they realized no plans had been made that they were aware of, and so they asked Jesus, well, so where are we going to celebrate Passover? In Matthew 26, 18, we read this. He replied, Jesus replied to them, go into a city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, first of all, I want you to notice what Jesus referred to the cross as. He referred to it as his appointed time. He knew that he was going to take up his cross, carry it to the site of his crucifixion, and give up his life for us. 
But in his understanding, in God's understanding, that was an appointment. It wasn't just an event in time. It was actually already scheduled. It was an appointment, his appointed time. God had a specific time in mind. But another thing that's interesting in this verse, it tells the disciples not an address where they should go to celebrate and prepare for the Passover. He says, I want you to go into the city and meet a certain man. Well, that's pretty general. But it's clear that Jesus is saying not just any man, not just a random man, but a certain man. Now, we get a few more details about what unfolded in this moment in Mark's gospel when Mark tells this story. Here's what Mark says in Mark chapter 14, verses 13 through 16. Jesus sent two of his disciples, so this is the same scene, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So this is the certain man that Matthew was talking about. Follow this man who's carrying this jar of water. Say to the owner of the house that he walks into, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and here's the amazing thing, and found things just as Jesus told them. Now, just let this sink in for a moment. This, this is an amazing set of detailed events that occurred. Jesus didn't give an address about where they're going to celebrate the Passover. He didn't give a name of the certain man. He just said he's going to be carrying a jar. Well, in a city of this size... There's lots of people carrying jars because they didn't have running water and they had to go to the well to get water. So there'd be all kinds of people carrying jars. So this is a series of precisely timed events that had to happen in exact order at the exact time in order for them to find this house where they celebrated the Passover. Now, for me, my calendar is blocked out usually in about 30-minute increments. That's about how precise I plan my day. Now, what were the increments, though, for this event? Well, this was just a matter of seconds. This is a window of seconds that had to all be perfectly timed. I mean, I like to think of this, let's just say this is a movie, and you have the movie script, and you know that this man carrying the jar is going to have to run to the disciples at the exact same time in order for the disciples to follow him to this house. If you had that movie script and you were the director, you would have to rehearse this in order to get it right. You'd start by saying, all right, cue the guy with the jar, cue the disciples. No, no, timing's off. Let's start again. You go a little earlier. You'd have to practice this to get it right. So this is the level at which God is aware of and manages the future. Not just a general sweeping idea, but precise appointments. Now, it didn't have to occur this way. This occurred so that we would read it and we would understand God really is in control of the future. So what does this mean for the details of your life and my life? Several things. I mean, we don't have to panic. If God is planning the future at this level, we don't need to panic. There's no reason to be impatient. There's no reason to worry. God's timetable is on track, and he never misses an appointment. The problem we have with waiting is that God often does not move at our pace. God moves at his pace. And God's pace tends to be much slower than we would like it to be. This, you see this throughout the pages of the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. Abraham, who became the father of the nation of Israel, was promised that he would be the father of a nation, and part of that promise was that he would have a son, which is a critical first step. If you're going to father a nation, you need to have some children. And he, he and his wife, Sarah, were not able to have any kids. So God promised Abraham that he would have a son. From the point of the promise, how long was it until Isaac, the son of Abraham, was born? It was 30 years. He told him the promise, and then 30 years later, 30 years of waiting, 
and wondering, finally the son is born. Same kind of thing with Moses. Moses is the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. God promised to Moses that they were going to be able to do that, that he was going to lead them. How long from the promise to when it actually happened? Forty years. That's a long period of time. I mean, when our kids were young, we would never tell them that we were going to Disneyland until the day of. If you're a parent, you know why. If you tell them a week before, that's all you're going to hear about all week. Is today we're going to Disneyland? No, no, I said a week. Well, they don't really understand a week when they're real young. So we would often, especially when they were little, we would wake up in the morning, and to their great surprise, we were getting in the car on our way to Disneyland. We couldn't even let them sleep on it overnight because they wouldn't sleep. They had no patience. So why does God then make so many amazing promises and then keep us waiting for so long? Well, it's to teach us patience, and in the process of patience, to grow our faith and our trust in Him. Because we are not like children that do not have the capacity for patience. We do have the capacity for patience. The problem with patience is at its core, now not when we're young, at its core it's a capacity issue, but for us that are older, patience at its core is a surrender issue. The reason that our kids still, as they got older, didn't like waiting was for the same reason we don't like to wait. It means that we're not in charge. Whenever you're waiting, part of the implication is you're not in charge. In 600 B.C., the Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk put words to our common complaint of God's timing, of having to wait for God so often. And God answered his complaint, which gives us great insight into why he has us wait so often. Now, the prophets before Habakkuk had been warning and that, that justice was coming. They had actually been promising justice that all of the inequities that had been going on were going to be made right, but year after year would go by and nothing would happen. So finally Habakkuk had, had enough, and he wrote these words in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, Violence! Now look at all this violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice, he says? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. This doesn't sound like 600 B.C. This sounds like 2020. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. What he's saying is there might, might as well not even be any laws because there's no justice. And justice never prevails, he says. The wicked hem in the righteous. The wicked are gaining the upper hand. The people who want to do right, they're continually blocked by the wicked so that justice is perverted. He says at the beginning, he says, God, I'm calling out for help, but you don't listen. Have you ever seen a child get lost and cry out for help to its mother? You know, they're running around, Mom, Mom, what's your first thought? Where is the mom? What, how could a mother just... Did, did the mother walk away from the child, or, or what's going on here? You really question the heart of the mom that would allow this to happen. Now, if you're a parent of little ones, you know it, it, it can happen. They're quick. But when you're watching, you're wondering, where, where's the mom? This is what Habakkuk is saying. I'm calling out for you, but it's like you're, you're not even listening to me. I'm saying, God, God, and where's the justice? It's not here. He said, I'm yelling violence, but you don't act. I'm saying, look, there's violence going on here. He's describing kind of the scene we read about sometimes when 
there's an act of violence, and all these people are standing around watching. They're not getting involved. And Habakkuk says, that's what it feels like, God. I'm, I'm saying, I'm yelling, look at this, look at this violence. And heaven is quiet, and justice is not done. Well, listen to God's answer. I mean, these are some pretty strong words, but this is what we struggle with. The next verse, verse 5, is God's answer. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. So what's the answer? Just wait, Habakkuk. It's going to be amazing. Just wait? So the answer to the complaint about waiting is, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. What? What kind of answer is that? Again, you see that God has a very different sense of timing than we do. He's not hurried up at all by Habakkuk's complaints. Why is that? God knows that this life comes with a few windows of opportunity that will affect the next life. And he wants us to get ready for the next life. And that requires surrender. So God is more about making the most of the windows of opportunity for us to surrender. And the best windows of all are when we have to wait. What he's saying in this answer is that there's two great opportunities for you to surrender when you're waiting. Let me mention them to the two of them this morning. The first, waiting invites us to surrender our plan to God's plan. If we didn't have to wait, we might not even be aware there was another plan because our plan is just working so well. But waiting invites us to surrender our plan. Again, Habakkuk 1.5 says, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. What he's saying is, I'm going to do something that's going to be a complete surprise to you. And it's going to be an amazing surprise. From Habakkuk's perspective, it looked like he was doing nothing. But the truth was that God was working on a plan, just that Habakkuk didn't know about the plan yet. God has a detailed plan that's not only more important than our plan, it's way better than our plan. It's so much better that God says, you're going to look back on this period of waiting and you're going to be utterly amazed at what I was working out. You, you don't see it now, but you will look back and you'll see it. So what is it that makes God's plan so amazing? Well, one of the things that makes them so amazing is they're so much bigger than our plans. Our plans are usually for us. They're our plans. God's plans are much bigger. They include us, but it's bigger than us. Galatians 4.4 says something interesting about God's plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, here to pay the price for our sin. This is what it says in Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So why that year? Why not the year before it? Or maybe a hundred years before it. Why was that the time? Well, it's because, as it says at that moment, the time had fully come. What does that mean? I mean, how can time fully come? I mean, right now it's 937. So is it fully 937 or partly 937? I would say it's fully 937. So what is, what is this verse referring to? The Greek word that's used here, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word that's used here for fullness, when it speaks of the fullness of time, is the exact same word that was used in the ancient Greek world to describe the point in time when a ship 
had been fully loaded with all of its cargo and all of its passengers, and then it set sail. You know, there might be a published time, but the ship's not going to leave until all the passengers on board and all the cargo's been loaded, and now it's fully loaded. That's the fullness word, and now it can sail. That's important to understand because ships don't just carry one passenger. They don't just carry one item of cargo. And what this is saying is with time, God doesn't ever just do one thing for one person. Now, we focus usually on one big goal. There may be several steps to it, but we've got one focus. But God wants to haul more freight than, than we do. And God's just not passing time. He is using time to carry out the freight of his purposes and the people in those purposes. So he loads up time until it's full. Then and only then do we see movement. We tend to think of time as kind of our personal watercraft. We just get to bomb around on and do whatever we want with. But God says, no, time's more like a ship with passengers and cargo. And you know what? You're just one passenger. So we have to wait sometimes. If you've ever been on a flight, you have to wait because you're waiting for someone to make it from one gate to the other. It's because it's not your private plane. It's a commercial flight, so you have to wait. But it's as we wait, we get the chance to consider a plan bigger than ours. For seven long years, our two kids asked pretty relentlessly, my daughter even more than my son, for a dog, for a puppy. Now, you might think, seven years, how cruel is that? And that's what they thought. In those seven years, they would often give in to despair. You don't don't like dogs. You don't ever want a dog. That's not true. The fact was, we were working on a plan. But if you think we couldn't tell them about Disneyland a few days out, we definitely couldn't talk about our puppy plan. They had no patience for that. All they saw was a puppy. By the way, this was the day where there were pet stores, and you could walk into a pet store and walk out with a puppy. So we made the mistake early on of walking through pet stores. That only fueled that desire. But all they saw was they wanted a puppy. We saw more than that. What we saw was the place we were living in wouldn't really be that conducive for a dog. And so we wanted to wait until we were in a better situation in terms of living space. We also knew that they weren't old enough to really help with the puppy. And we saw a puppy is not only an opportunity for a lot of fun, but an opportunity to teach them some basic responsibility. They need to get to a certain age. We couldn't explain all this to them. They wouldn't have agreed. They wouldn't have understood. But I'll never forget the day I came home with Carmen, our puppy. My daughter cried. I mean, I was the hero of all heroes. I went from being the worst dad on the planet to the best. At that moment, she said it was the happiest day of her life. So what I'm saying is it looked like we were doing nothing, but in fact, we were planning something good. This is the way it is with us and God. Personally, my plan right now is to be done with COVID. I just want it to go away. (laughs) And I'm sure many of you want the same thing. But apparently, that ship isn't ready to sail yet. Why? Oh, there's all kinds of theories on why. But the main answer is, the ship hasn't sailed, 
because God hasn't sent it yet. He hasn't said, now, it's full, go. So to help me be patient, I have to think through, why might God be allowing this to linger? I don't know, but I have to guess. These are a couple of my guesses. One guess is, my wife and I, we keep meeting more and more neighbors than we ever have before in the 18 years we've lived in our neighborhood. And many of you report the same thing. People that just last year from across the street, we couldn't get them to look up and wave at us. And now they're walking across the street just to talk. So maybe God wants that to go on a little bit longer. That's a good thing. The longer this goes on, what we're noticing is the more meaningful the conversations can be with people. And people are beginning to ask bigger questions. People are really hungering for real community. Not just fake online stuff, but real stuff. And they're really looking for truth. Big answers. Big questions are being asked, and not many good answers are being given. People are really hungry for this. So the COVID ship will set sail when it's time. And we need to be patient. The second opportunity that comes with waiting is waiting, secondly, invites us to surrender our status. So first of all, it invites us to surrender our plan, whatever our plans were, to God's plan. Secondly, invites us to surrender our status. Last week, I became one of the few remaining holdouts to join Amazon Prime. I don't know of anyone who hasn't joined Amazon Prime yet, so I'm, I'm one of the last, late adapters in that one. And I just have to say, what you guys all know, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I don't know how they do it, but it's just amazing. I ran out of razor blades just a few days ago. In less than 24 hours, boom, there they are. I mean, I just thought about it. Okay, so these were manufactured, most likely in China, put on a ship, sent to a storage center to await my demand, and then it arrives at my, I mean, it's just, it's a miracle. It's amazing. (laughs) I now understand why Amazon stock has grown 300% in the past five years. That makes sense now. But I think the name Prime is a pretty good description of the membership experience. The word Prime means what? to be of first importance. So before I was a Prime member, I had to wait for my Amazon orders to arrive. In fact, I'm still waiting on a pre-Prime order to arrive. (laughs) I guess they don't update once you join Prime. So I'm still waiting for that to happen. But now that I'm more important to Amazon, because I'm paying them $13 a month, now I don't have to wait. That's the evidence that I'm important. The challenge with this is God doesn't offer a prime membership option. The reason is not because we're not important. We are important. We're just not prime. We're not primary. God is. The evidence of this fact is the same as it is with Amazon. It shows up in the speed of the service that we get, or in the case of God, the lack of the speed of the service that we get. It's just a way for us to remember we're not prime in this relationship. The fact that we are waiting for God in so many areas of our life is evidence of the fact that we're not primary and He is. The only membership option God offers is non-prime. Not non-important, but non-prime. So again, Habakkuk 1.5, God's answer, says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. So again, what's, what makes something amazing? Well, partly it's the bigness of the plan, 
but part of what makes things amaze is just the surprise, the shock of it. I hadn't thought that would happen. It's the stories of last-minute unexpected rescues and heroics that people pay money to read about and money to see. This is part of what God is doing. Romans 5 verse 6 says, you see, at just the right time, when is that? When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. When's the right time? When we are completely powerless. Why is that the right time? That's because God is doing the amazing, not the boring. He is the hero of the story that's being written throughout time. All of creation exists to turn heads in his direction. One of the big challenges we have is we think it's about turning heads our direction, and it is not. It's about turning heads God's direction to give him glory. If you were writing a story, if you were writing a movie to glorify a hero, how would you do it? Would you have the hero continually winning? Now, that's, that's not amazing. It's not surprising. You'd make it look as if the bad guy was winning. And then with everyone on the edge of their seat, the hero would arrive. And it would look like it's too late, but it wouldn't be too late. It would be just in the nick of time. God is the only one who rightly deserves our glory. This is history. This is his story. It's not our story. It's history. What that means is we have to wait for things sometimes to get worse. We often have to wait for things to get worse. Why? It's not bad enough for God's rescue to be amazing. It needs to get worse. You see this over and over again throughout the pages of the Bible. One example is when God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He said specifically that he would gain glory through that event. People would be amazed at how that happened. So how did he do this? Well, let's break it down into Acts. Act number one, the people of Israel were enslaved for 430 years. 430 years of misery. Why that long? Why not 420? In God's understanding, it took 10 more years for things to get bad enough. Then God sends Moses to deliver 10 plagues. And you know what? Life just got worse. Much worse. Then they finally decided, okay, Pharaoh said, you can go. And they left, and Pharaoh had second thoughts and said, no, I, this, is, this is the best labor force I've ever had, all these slaves. He marshals his army, and he chases all of these men, women, and children who he just freed to the edge of the Red Sea. I mean, just things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Now they're backed up against the Red Sea, a giant massacre is about to occur, and what happens? The Red Sea parts. That's amazing. But before that amazing thing happens, God had to load up the ship with all kinds of people and all kinds of agendas, and things just had to get worse. So at every point, it seemed like God was making mistakes. But what he was doing is he was adding glory to the timeline. He was adding glory. This is the same situation that we find ourselves in today with our Heavenly Father. Things keep getting worse. I mean, not slavery in Egypt worse, but worse. And we're wondering, is God ever going to act? But all along, God has been working on a plan.
And while we wait, he's loading up more and more people onto the ship of time and more and more glory onto that ship. But it's easy to become overwhelmed by the present circumstances and then give in to despair. But this life is our only chance on the timeline of eternity to truly surrender to God. Our short life is just a little spot on all of eternity, and it's the only chance we have to freely surrender to God. You know, in heaven, surrender is automatic. To see God is to fall on your face before him. It's no choice. It's automatic. In hell, the lifelong decision to surrender, to not surrender, rather, will become permanent. It will be locked in. There will be no chance to surrender. Then it will be too late. But now is the small window of time on the timeline of eternity that we get to freely surrender to God's plan and God's status. So let's start our day by surrendering. Start our day with the expectation that God is up to something. I would encourage all of us today and this week to begin our days and look ahead as best we can and say, and just ask ourselves, I wonder what amazing things God is going to do with this day. I don't know if I'll see it today. I may not see it for weeks or years. But just start with the expectation. God's up to something. I wonder what it is and how I can be a part of that. The next time things are not going according to your schedule, bow your head and surrender to God's will. Then close your eyes and surrender your timetable to God and say, I'll wait. So again, Habakkuk 1.5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. So join me as we do the first two that we've been talking about. We bow our heads and we close our eyes and pray. So let's pray. Father, we gather on this day on the timeline that you run, and we first, we bow our heads and surrender to your will. We want to be a part of what you're doing rather than demand that you be a part of what we're doing. We so often get that backwards. We so often expect you to be our servant, helping us accomplish all that we want to do, when in fact you've created us to be a part of what you're doing. And so we, as Jesus said, To his Father, we say to you also, not what we will, but what you will in this day and in this week. And then, Father, we have our eyes closed. As a reminder, we can't even see one minute in the future. We've got all kinds of plans. We don't even know if we're going to arrive there, but you can. So we surrender our future plans to your plan and our attempts to get everyone to focus their attention on us to instead point people in your direction. Help us to have faith in you as we wait. We pray this now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.